Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the service from June 18th, 2023. Thank you. God bless. Welcome to Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. It's good to see you all, visitors and family. We pray you are well today. I'm going to begin this reading this morning with a reading from Genesis 1, verses 6 through 23. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Let's pray. God who creates and destroys, it is good to be together today, the saints, to remember that we are made, that we are created and not self-created, that we are born, that we die, and in the hope that we might be raised again. And we take comfort in our impermanence, in our weakness, and in our uh, our mortality. Uh, to know that this world that you've made is good, that it has come before and will outlast us, and that we are joined to a multitude of, of people, of saints through the world, uh, who continue to praise you. So we ask that you hear our songs today, our prayers, accept our confession. Bless us this day and this week uh, to be for you the people that you have made. In Jesus' name, amen. 22. 22. All the way, my Savior,
this community. And it's a very exciting celebration. If you will turn with me, please, I'll be reading from Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for providing us time for fellowship and blessing us with friendship. Please bless our time together as we worship you. Dear Lord, please provide comfort and moments of joy for a group of people we are praying for. For our missionaries, please provide protection and safety to them personally. Manuel Perdomo, Ty, Byron, Snezana, Lindsay, and the Millers. For those that are sick or who are approaching surgery very soon, please send them knowledgeable and caring medical staff. We pray for Stina, Chuck, Stephen, Ray, Wes, Alicia, Phyllis, Jean, Leanne, Brett, Pam, Jane, Aiden, and Debbie. Thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, oh, oh. 
We turn that at 360. 360. Jesus said, your pilot me. sense of peace 
that comes with that. Because there's so much beauty and there's so much comfort. And this morning I want to explore what is that sense, where does it come from, and how should we approach the natural world, specifically in terms of God's creation and the study in our world of science. When we have those type of transcendent experiences, there are three things that normally come to mind. Identity, purpose, and direction. The identity question that comes up in the midst of that is, who am I? The purpose question that comes up is, why am I here? And the direction question that comes up is, where am I going? And all that arises in that sense of wonder. I want you to locate this morning the time in your life that you really started leaning into that sense of wonder. And maybe it was when you were a child and you were running through a summer night catching lightning bugs or fireflies, depending on what you called it where you grew up. Maybe it was looking at the night sky. Maybe it was looking through a telescope or a microscope. Maybe it was going to what was, in my childhood, was the, the Cumberland Science Museum. Now it's the Adventure Science Center. That sense of wonder. One of the great tragedies in the modern world is that often, or at least in some circles, that sense of wonder, that sense of studying the natural world, and our belief in the invisible God are in conflict with one another. It's my thesis, and I've talked about this before when we talked about, that, about the proverbial faith and science question, that the conflict narrative of faith and science is a minority position, and yet it's the loudest voice. So sometimes we think that's the greatest narrative that there is. But if we look at history in a whole, it is not the majority position. And it seems to want to take all the oxygen out of the room. I shared with you a recent story when I was had the blessing to teach a course on faith and science, and I was listening to a young man talk about his experience in sixth grade science. And he said he had grown up in a household of faith where he believed that God created the world. And then when he was in sixth grade science, and he was hearing about the material understandings of how the world came to be and how the world sustains itself, and there was no mention of God, he suddenly felt his faith evaporating away. In our time together, in that course when we talked about, yes, we should study those material understandings of the natural world, and yet we can also see God as the cosmic power behind all that, and we can embrace both. He said for the first time in a dozen years, he found his faith coming back. Here's a couple of non-negotiables for me before we get into a conversation that I'm going to make as undramatic as possible. <laughs> but you know that the faith and science question can be quite sticky and controversial in some spheres. Okay, so I'm going to try to make it as uncontroversial as possible. But here's a few non-negotiables for me. Number one, God created the world. God created all things. So however the world came to be, and however the world is sustained, God is the loving power behind it. Full stop. God created the world. Number two, the Bible is true and therefore can be trusted. And yet, as we talked about last week, the Bible is not always meant to be read literally. The Bible is often meant to be read figurative, and we must have a nuanced, nuanced eye to note the difference. When the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, that is literal. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. That is a literal understanding. And yet there's so much figurative truth in the Bible. What do I mean by figurative truth? Kids, teenagers, adults, think of this. If someone talking about a bad breakup they went through or their favorite sports team lost or whatever it is, and they're like, ah, oh, my heart just breaks. Do they mean literally that their heart broke? No. When your friend says, man, my heart is breaking, do you call 911? No. They don't literally mean that. It's a figure expression. You give them a hug. If I... Uh, if they're talking about college football in the fall and someone says, oh, I, I bleed orange for UT or I bleed red for Alabama, okay, you don't literally think they bleed orange, right? It's a figurative expression. And the Bible contains much figurative 
truly. Number three, first, God created the world. Second, the Bible can be trusted. And yet, let's remember it's not always literal. Sometimes it's figurative. Number three, the choice between science is a false choice. The, the choice between faith and science is a false choice. We can have both because God is above and beyond all things. So let's get into Genesis 1 and 2 some more this morning. You have your Bible, or if you want to open your bulletin there for the segment of Genesis 1. Let's look at the early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. It's my thesis that Genesis chapter 1, specifically, when I say Genesis 1, I'm really talking through verse 3 of chapter 2, okay? When you get through the Sabbath part there, and you can see that in the opening pages of the Bible. When it finishes the seventh day, I'm including that in Genesis 1. The chapter divisions came like, only like a thousand years ago, okay? So I would include that in, in Genesis 1. It's my belief that Genesis 1 should best be seen as a work of poetry. It's my belief that Genesis 2 should best be understood as, it might help you to think of the world word parable, okay? Where there is, is truth behind it, for sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's always literal. It might help you to think of it as, I know this can sound like an oxymoron, but the idea of a true myth, okay? Meaning, the Genesis 2 story is true, but it's caked in ancient language and ancient storytelling. Do I believe there is a historical antecedent of Adam and Eve? I'm one of those people that do believe that, okay? And yet I believe the story is written in a certain type of figurative language, okay? I know some of that can be dense, but perhaps I can explain it this way. Okay, now for the fancy word segment of today's talk. So look at the back of the bulletin under sermon notes, okay? I'm not trying to be impressive. In fact, I had Amy put it on the bulletin because I couldn't remember these words on my own. Okay. <laughs> I want to compare and contrast a few terms there that I think are really helpful. The first word there is teleology, or maybe teleology, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And that is the study of design and purpose. The study of design and purpose. And then it's followed up by the word biology. The science of life or living matter. Is my firm belief, based on people I've talked to and a lot of scholars I've read, that the early chapters of Genesis are about teleology, not biology, for a number of reasons, okay? I love biology, okay? I don't understand near as much about it as a lot of you. <laughs> it, I believe, comes ultimately from a belief in God in an ordered universe, but I do not believe that's the set purpose of the opening chapters of Genesis. I believe the opening chapters of Genesis are about who are we, why are we here, and where are we going? Those questions of identity, purpose, and direction. Notice the explanation of the word science. Systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. Now, we have a number of scientists in the room. I'm not going to open mic it because you guys will take two hours elaborating on that definition, okay? But science is based on experimentation and observation. We should point out that that pursuit, that endeavor, that definition did not exist when the Bible was being put together. That is a more recent type of enterprise, so we could date that and talk about that. The last term I want to look at is the term scientism. Let me read this for you. The view that the hard sciences like chemistry, biology, physics, astronomy, provide the only genuine knowledge of reality, or at the very least, that this scientific knowledge is vastly superior to what we can know from any other discipline. Now, I believe the choice between faith and science is a false choice. I believe because of our faith, we can embrace and study and enjoy science. I believe scientism is arrogant, condescending, and dangerous. The belief that if it can't be seen through a microscope or through a telescope, then it's simply not true. Because there are key parts of our faith that can't be detected by science. 
right? How does prayer work? All right, we're people that believe in prayer. Can we prove prayer through a mathematical formula or through some type of investigative lens? No. And yet we believe it on faith. Sometimes what's going on is scientism, and sometimes what's simply going on is the study of science, and those things are very different. I'd also like to liven it up with a quote here from one of my favorite writers on this topic, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who sadly passed away a couple years ago. He has this great quote I've always gone back to. Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. I always found that to be a very beautiful type of phrase, a very beautiful type of quotation. Some of the things that we said last week when we were comparing Genesis 1 and 2 to other ancient works of literature. And once again, we should be kind to our spiritual ancestors because a lot of these ancient works of literature, they didn't know existed until the last 150 years when we dug these up in the Middle East. Okay, thank you, Indiana Jones. Okay, so other ancient works of literature were focused on chaos. The early chapters of Genesis are focused on order. Other ancient works of literature were focused on war. The early chapters of Genesis are focused on peace. Other ancient literature was focused on anger. The early chapters of Genesis are focused on love. So who is God? God is a God of order. Subset of that is God is a God of design and purpose in contrast to chaos. You know that when you are walking with the Lord, life may be hard, but you do, are not experiencing it as chaos. You have had those experiences when life is hard and you, you experience the peace of God because that's who God is. God is a God of peace. God is a God of order. And God is a God of love. If you compare all these ancient works of literature and you put the early chapters of Genesis among it, there is no comparison. There is no love like the love of Yahweh blew people's minds. How wonderful and beautiful this God was. Now, once again, the early chapters of Genesis are about teleology, not biology or science. And one thing that someone pointed out to me a few years ago, Justin, you might have been one of these individuals. If you disagree with this, then just raise your hand afterwards, okay? But um, if the Bible, the Bible is written through an ancient lens, and sometimes we're like, I wish it had been written through my cultural lens. I wish the other chapters of Genesis had been written for a 2023 audience. And as much as we might want that, here's the problem. In 100 years, in 250 years, in 500 years, it would be quote-unquote outdated then. So if it was written in the science of our time, we do realize that the science of our time will be outdated in 500 years. So there are these timeless truths in the Bible, and if we take the time to go through the cultural skin, we find these truths. A couple of books that have been important to me, and I've referenced a few of these before, and I'll list them here in the bulletin. The scholar John Walton has this wonderful series called The Lost World Series. The Lost World of Genesis 1 and The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And it's his thesis that the early chapters in Genesis are talking about the functional creation of the cosmos, not the material function of the cosmos. So once again, what is the purpose and the design of the world? Why did God create it? What are God's values instead of the material ways? He says that the ancient people didn't even think in those ways. Therefore, when people ask Walton about various scientific understandings, how the world came to be, various material processes, or even a word that sometimes can take the air out of the room, evolution, Walton simply says, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 just really don't speak to that. Positive or negatively. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 says, whenever it happened, and however it happened, God was behind it. And in my life, I've kind of adopted that position when people ask me about various forms of scientific causes and scientific processes. I don't believe the Bible speaks to that either way. 
except to say that whenever it happened and however it happened, God did it. I referenced a scholar last week that I've gotten really into uh, recently, even though she's been around for a while, Sandra Richter. Been working through her book called The Ethic of Eden. And I'd like to read for you uh, a rather long quote from hers, but I think it's really, really interesting. And don't zone out in this long quote, because we're going to stand for the gospel reading in a second. And Clark has something really cool that you're going to bring up. And Clark and I are going to talk about at the end of the sermon. So kids, it's worth the wait. And if you've looked at the bulletin, you notice Marianne and Clay have the donuts. They're here. Okay, the donuts are here. Okay, I feel like I've got to encourage some of the kids, because it's been dry up to this point. Okay. Let me read this rather long quote from you. This is from Sandra Richter. She's talking about Genesis 1 and 2. She asks, Why do we have two seemingly distinct accounts of creation right here in the opening chapters of the Bible? You've experienced that before. You've read Genesis 1 and 2, and you're like, these seem to be two different stories. Why are they like crammed here at the beginning? That's what she says. My simplified answer to this question is that whereas the creation account of Genesis 2 and 3, story of Adam and Eve, okay, is most likely ancient, ancient material. And yes, she said ancient twice. <laughs> it's most likely ancient, ancient material that had been treasured for generations prior to its incorporation into the book we now know as Genesis. Genesis 1, rather, was composed specifically to serve as a grand introduction to the same not merely as an introduction to Genesis 2 and 3, but to all the ancient and inherited narratives of Genesis, and even as an introduction to the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, as a whole. In some, I believe, this is her speaking, in some, I believe, Genesis 1 was written to provide a lens through which to read the rest of the Pentateuch. And since the Pentateuch is the backbone of the entire Bible, ultimately Genesis 1 serves as the introduction to our faith. What is she saying? She's saying the story of Adam and Eve have been passed down orally for many, many years. You have a liberated Israel sometime post the Exodus, she's not trying to date that here, that has carried around this story and they're starting to write this down and they're like, you know what? We need a grand introduction to this Yahweh story. Her opinion, I think there's something to this. They wrote this beautiful work of poetry led by the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1. That was this intro into the narrative of God. Now returning to her quote. Assuming that this assessment of the relationship of Genesis 1 and 2 is accurate, our next question is, what would have been on this author's mind as he wrote his grand introduction? In other words, what did the author of Genesis 1 feel was necessary to set up as the theological and historical lens for his audience as he launched his readers into redemption story? I must tell you, that I do not think he was concerned about the chronological and geological details of the creation of them. Nor do I think he was occupied with explaining the end of the dinosaur age, or the, quote, old and young earth theory. Rather, I think his most central concern was probably educating Yahweh's wayward people as to who this God was and what this God expected of them. And certainly, a major point of confusion for the recently liberated, not the recently liberated too long in Egypt Israelites, was the concept of monotheism, belief in one God. Yahweh was a God unlike the others of the ancient Near East, one who stood outside and above his creation, a God for whom there were no rivals, and who had created humanity as his children as opposed to his slaves. We're going to spend a whole week on that comment coming up. Thus, I think Genesis 1 was intended as a rehearsal of the creation event with the all-controlling theological agenda of explaining who God is and what his relationship to creation and specifically humanity looks like. Basically, Genesis 1 was written to answer the questions, who is God and what is his relationship to us? And so we read, once again, this beautiful work of literature. We know that we are not a cosmic accident. We're not the product of many gods warring over each other and then suddenly one reigns supreme or something like that. We're not subject to a god that has made us slaves. We're subject to a god, well, the god of Psalm 100 that Christy read. The god who created us and we are his. 
We are his, as Solomon Henry said. That we are not alone in this universe, but there is someone who loves us and has dominion over us. And the beauty of the gospel story, last three or four minutes here, the beauty of the gospel story is that this God that created us returned to earth in physical form in the work of Jesus. So let us read the gospel reading together. If you would stand with me, join in the bold section. This is a familiar story about Jesus calming the storms. I don't want us to read it this morning as a creation story. Mark 4, 35-41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the disciples. Sorry, the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown together? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is God's word. You may be seated. In Genesis 1, it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and speaking things into existence. And here you have the incarnate God over the waters speaking to the waters and the waters obey. Mark chapter 4 is Genesis 1 in the flesh. The creator God has returned. And as Christian people, the most significant lens we have for understanding our natural world and for understanding the relationship of faith and science is the story of Jesus. Clark, are you ready? You ready, Clark? You come up with it. And I appreciate you helping here, Clark. Okay. You want to tell them what you have, what two colors you have here? So we've got. No, no, do it again, do it again. You're doing great. There's yellow and then blue. Then we put those together. Yellow and blue make green. Extra donut for Clark. Stay up here. Okay, so. Can we make green if we don't have yellow and blue? Okay, let me just take the yellow. You keep the blue. Can you make green there with just blue? Okay, you take the yellow. I'll take the blue. Can you make green with just yellow? But if you have both, what can you make? Green. Awesome. Have a seat, Clark. You're awesome. You're the best. You're the best. Ask him 30 seconds beforehand. Thank you, Clark. Okay, so here's the deal. There is sometimes a push, and this is scientism. All we need is the physical, and we can know. But there's also the sense on the faith side. All we need is the spiritual. One of my favorite stories in the story of Galileo that I spent a bunch of time with is when Galileo modifies the telescope, and he's looking at the faces of Venus and the moons of Jupiter and all this, and he has a bunch of priests around him, and he says, look through the telescope. And they said, no. We refuse to look through the telescope. Because all they wanted was spiritual. But in Jesus, who is God incarnate, physical and spiritual come together. And this is the lens by which we understand all things. It took me a lot of years to understand this. But when I saw that falling star in 1985 in Maine, and I felt something, I was encountering Jesus, my creator, who returned for me and will return again to make all things new. And that is the thread, that is the beauty that holds it all together. Let's stand together and sing. Oh, how kindly hast thou led me every father day by day from my dwelling clothed and fed me furnished friends to cheer my way Didst thou bless me, didst thou chasten with thy smile of wind? 
full transparency until this became a holiday two years ago. I didn't know anything about Juneteenth. Um, so I did basic Googling search and I was <laughs> searching to, to learn a little bit more and I wound up on the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture site and I was reading about Juneteenth and while reading about that I was introduced to another day that I'd never heard of that is not a holiday but it's called Watch Night. So just a little quick history. Um, Lincoln signed that executive order to to free enslaved people in Confederate-held states. It was not a perfect anything by far, but it was something, and it was signed in September of um, 1862, September 22nd, but it would not go into effect until the clock struck 12, January 1st, 1863. The watch night was December 31st, and free and enslaved African-Americans gathered, and they waited and they sang songs, they prayed, and they waited. To be very fair, they had been waiting much longer than one evening. And then the clock struck 12, and they were still waiting. <laughs> because it wasn't magic, it wasn't like Disney where something happens and all of a sudden the castle's immediately transformed. They were, they were still waiting, and some, some of that community waited another two years, hence Juneteenth which is when the last enslaved um, African-Americans who was in Texas were, were informed of their liberation. But I wonder, and this is a big wonder, if somehow the waiting felt a little different because there was something behind waiting this time. There was some legislation. There was the hope of action. And even waiting two and a half years, which is, crazy long to wait after something has gone into effect, if the waiting felt different, different means, I guess. Following the crucifixion, the disciples gathered together and they waited, and they waited in fear because they, there was nothing, they didn't know what was coming. There was nothing to, to, for them to put their hope on because they hadn't understood who Christ was and what he could do and what was going to happen. And then they saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. They saw him ascend into the sky. And he gave them a promise that he was coming back. He gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they gathered again and they waited. And they waited for the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if their waiting felt different because it was built on something concrete, something that they had touched, something that they knew. It just felt different. And every week we gather together and we wait together in hope and certainty that the kingdom of God is returning, that Jesus is returning and that he is with us and living with us in our hearts and the Holy Spirit infuses us as we wait to give, to give us the strength and the power and the confidence in our waiting. On the website, there was a quote by Frederick Douglass that was taken from, or occurred on, I never know how you phrase that, December 31st, 1862. And I thought it was really beautiful. And I thought it, it, it's just as relevant to our, to our waiting as we wait on the Lord together. And he said, um, it is a day for poetry and song, a new song. The cloudless skies, this balmy air, this brilliant sunshine are in harmony with the glorious morning of liberty about to dawn upon us. Pray with me, please. Dear Holy Father, thank you so much for the freedom we have in you through the sacrifice your son made for us. Freedom of fear, freedom of judgment. Thank you for the promises of heaven, of eternal life with you, with our brothers and sisters. Help us to remember and to be thankful every day for our freedom and to invite others into that freedom with us. We ask these things through Jesus' name. Amen.
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for letting us help us today. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Please keep us safe throughout the week and we just come together again soon. Thank you, Christ. Amen. So once again, happy Father's Day, uh, and just thank you to all the people who do things, the sacrificing and the, the serving and uh, the, 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 uh, the people that witness the funny stuff. Um, thank you. Um, I just want to also say congratulations. Uh, today is Bonnie's birthday. I don't think she's here this morning, um, but be thinking of her. Um, also, we've got uh, Prentice on the 20th. Uh, and Brandon and Bodie are, tw are birthday twins this week, so rock and roll. It's a good. That's a strong day. Yeah, this is this a good day. Um, so uh, let me see what else we got here. Uh, there. So just a reminder that you know next, not this week, but next week there's going to be lots of fun mission week stuff. Um, if you are interested in the civil rights room part of that week, please get with JP because there's just a limited number of of spots um, to, to visit that part of the library. Um, it's a neat part of the library, by the way, if you've never been there. Um, there are 40 tickets to the Nash SC game. Um, that should be a lot of fun. Nashville's having a great year, so there should be, it should be one of those just kind of ruckus, kind of good fun kind of days. Um, uh, they won three to one last night, for instance. That was their 10th in a row, um, so they're doing really well. Um, Conway's on Wednesday, um, but pretty soon we're going to be in the building. Um, be watching out, those of you with kids uh, who have who are campers. Um, the, the, the it's registration time for for camp coming up for Encounter, um, and also be thinking about Encounter donations. There's a like nice long list here in the bulletin. Um, let me see. There's also, uh, oh, okay, Northside Church of Christ has invited us to their BBS. Now, those of you who aren't familiar, Northside is one of those churches that our kids are around a bunch, um, down in Riverwood, um, and the kids all love playing underground church at their church, evidently, so the BBS is probably going to be a good time. Um, so be thinking about that. Um, but that's kind of what's in here. Is there anything else that you guys have? Shannon? I got an update on Manuel Perdomo. Okay. Um, his surgery is Tuesday. His daughter said he had been stable, so um, he's, he's hanging in there, and hopefully we'll get good news after that. Great, great. Okay, so if you didn't hear that, Manuel Perdomo's surgery, um, remember he has colon cancer, um, is on Tuesday. So he's finally stable enough for surgery, so so they're gonna they're going forward with it. So be, be praying for him, and, and be praying just for, for that whole situation for his family as well. So um, is there anything else? All right, well, there's coffee and donuts downstairs. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.